Welcome to Entropy to Work, your podcast about technology, engineering, and culture. I am Thiago Ebel, and I am your host. We just came from a hiatus of two weeks without episodes, and I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep this weekly, but sometimes it's hard to coordinate with the guest schedules, editing, uploading, and etc. Also, my website, where also the blog is, uh, fluxuseng.com, was not updating. So I had to work a little bit on the website to make sure everything goes there. As you guys know, sometimes I leave in the website a little bit more information, uh, some links, some images, and some more reference about what we talk during the, the podcast. So hopefully by the time this goes live, that is up and running. Of course, there is more to run. Always there is a little bit more that could be improved. But again, this is a work in progress. Um, I'm really excited for this episode, as usual. But this one I'm especially excited as we are talking about nuclear energy. Not only this is a while that I wanted to cover the subject, but also last week, April 26th, it was the 35th anniversary of the Chernobyl incident. So I thought it was good timing not only to talk about the past, but also future prospects. For example, in a month's time, uh, it will happen the G7 summit here in the UK, actually not far away from where I'm living right now. From the G7 website, uh, and I quote, Prime Minister Boris Johnson will use the UK's G7 presidency to unite leading democracies to help the world fight and then build back better from coronavirus and create a greener, more prosperous future. As usual, this more greener actually scares me a little bit. What, what does this mean? Uh, it's not, as you guys will see in this episode, it's not black and white what is the right answer in most cases so in this episode we have again mr frank debella a semi-retired mechanical engineer and senior lecturer at boston uh university of boston someone who i always have a lot of fun talking and he was also the guest in the first episode of the podcast quite successfully i must add and i thought he would be the great person to discuss some of the dilemmas and questions about nuclear energy in this episode we talk about why nuclear energy and what it is uh, why it is important to the general public to understand how silly it is to assume that renewables are necessarily good and nuclear is necessarily bad and we go through in some details about what happened in the accidents of Chernobyl and Fukushima incidents uh, 35 and 10 years ago, respectively. As I said in the end of the episode, this was just our honest try to cover some of the main topics of nuclear energy and hopefully bring a little bit more of informed awareness about it. So hope you guys enjoy it. And now I bring you Mr. Frank DiBella. There we go. All right. We're already talking a lot. Let's uh, start officially recording now. So here I am with Mr. Frank DeBell again. Thanks for being the podcast again, Frank. Oh, please. I enjoyed the, the first time. I hope people enjoyed it as well, but we'll see. Oh, yeah. 
I, I think I haven't told you that yet, but in the audio only platforms, your episode is still by far the most listened one. Oh, that's encouraging. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 Yours is the most famous one. No, now no it's pressure. not no pressure. Yeah, no pressure for this one. <laughs> and uh, but not in the in the video format. In the video format, a lot of but I guess it's because some of them, like Ryan of the Turbo Pumps, he actually had a Turbo Pump, so oh, a lot I of people see. went to YouTube to actually see it. I see. So, I so I should bring you... some. Uh, I should I should bring some uh, materials with me. Yeah, slide exactly. Rule. We should get some some, some gadgets rule. and stuff. I mean, what do I do? Okay, let's slide rule. Okay, I'll do, I'll do that. Let me see. Where is it? <laughs> we have a slide rule here, and electric <laughs> power, which is generated by nuclear and wind and solar. <laughs> generates uh, no power tomorrow. I have my slide <laughs> ready, right here. <laughs> and it's still functioning. You have to have the energy for doing it. And the energy comes from your hamburgers and hot dogs. And anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I saw once a, a sign saying like, engineer is a machine that transforms coffee into machines. Yeah, there you go. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting <laughs> transformation. Here I am, by the way. My, There's no my... violation of second law there, I think. Because no, absolutely not. Electricity, uh, you know, chemical, electrochemical. Yeah, very good. There we go. And, uh, well, this is perfect timing, actually, with a bunch of stuff. So first, uh, Frank is very sharply dressed here in front of me, at least virtually. As, uh, <laughs> you also just did a very interesting webinar this week about supercritical compressors for supercritical yeah, 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 that was that a good... Um, that was a presentation on uh, work that SARI, the Shanghai uh, Research Institute, is doing with their laboratories testing uh, supercritical CO2. Big, big um, uh, point of research these days in a lot mm -hmm. of companies, certainly the United States, and then certainly oh, yeah. uh, China, and mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of European countries are doing it as well. Yeah, and yeah, and this is a great opening topic for what we want to talk today, especially because also last week, 26th of April, was the yeah. 35th anniversary of the Chernobyl accident. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, well, there's a lot to unpack just there, but... Uh, and, and we're still here. That's an important oh, yeah. part. We're still here. We're still here. A lot, of people, a lot of people have been displaced even yet, but... Um, it's amazing what this planet of ours can take. Yeah, and humans as well, which is uh, oh, how we learn for everything. Yeah. And actually, it's quite an interesting. I once saw an article that what happened in Chernobyl was pretty much the final nail to close the the cascade of the Soviet Union. And surely enough, yeah. three years later, yeah. it was. It was it was broken yeah. down into the well, I original. I mean, I, I've read, as I said to you in preparing for this presentation or this podcast, months earlier I had read this book, a nice book. It's a number of books, but Midnight to in Chernobyl, and he makes that the author makes that point. I mean, uh, Gorbachev was just coming into the Glasnost thing, and mm -hmm. um, trying to make it a little bit more open society, and then when this happened. A lot of people said, you know, the reason why this was so bad as far as a nuclear accident was the fact that the authorities at the time try to keep it suppressed. They try to keep it away from the people. And as a consequence, they didn't evacuate early enough. And they yeah. didn't tell the, they didn't, sometimes they didn't tell the officials. 
exactly what the officials needed to know. Because they were afraid of the cascade. Exactly. So um, ultimately, when literally the dust cleared, figuratively and literally, um, in fact, it might not still be cleared in some sense. Mm -hmm. But when all was said and done about what really caused it, um, people said, it's got to be a little bit more open, at least with respect to scientific things, because you can't express that. Yeah, not even to the event itself. What led to the event is years of isolation on both sides. The West society have been a little bit more, but uh, you know how the Soviet Union, so everything related to energy. And so in weapons, I almost getting, but like with energy and safety, this kind of stuff, we already learned the lesson. It needs to be collaboration. We need, there are lessons that we don't need to learn twice. Exactly. And, you know, with that, I, I was looking back on the time because we were preparing for this podcast, the uh, Three Mile Island, which in the United States was the one where you have this mm-hmm. iconic picture of the hyperbola looking um, cooling towers. You know, when you, mm-hmm. people think nuclear, they think they see this cooling tower and they OK, I know what you're doing there. You're you're generating electric power by nuclear, and which is not really true. You get cool like that shape in regular steam-powered plants using fossil fuels. But that happened in 1979. I only know that because I looked it up for this podcast. And yet that was, what, seven, eight years later, you have the Chernobyl thing, which, and Three Mile Island was there. The president of the United States walked through the facility after things calmed down. It was very public. You would have thought that the that any government would say, look, I understand that you've got to keep things secret as far as political and and warfare and all that stuff. When it comes to public safety, let's be serious about this. And if the United mm-hmm. States can show the world that there has been a problem and we could solve the problem, you would have thought that seven years later, when this happened in, in Russia, they would have said, okay, this is maybe not exactly the same as Three Mile Island. It's a little bit much worse. Let's get this out in the public and save lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, we need to we need to get to the bottom of this. And yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah, well, a lot to unpack already there. But so today we're talking about nuclear energy, and there is many reasons for that. Uh, first, let's talk about what is actually nuclear energy. So mm-hmm. actually, there is a quote that I think it's kind of timely here because I saw this and I thought I need to say that in the podcast. It's from Patrick Moore a former director of the Greenpeace International, which is, uh, let's say, an institution that I don't really like. I think they did more disservice than service, but let's, we can keep that to another podcast. But he mentioned, we made the mistake of lumping nuclear energy with nuclear weapons, as if all things nuclear were evil. I think that's a big mistake, as if you lumped nuclear medicine with nuclear weapons. And that's a that's absolutely true. Wow, it's it's pretty uh, bold of him to say that, given his uh, position. I think, but that's yeah, well, I guess that's the yeah, I, that's the beauty true. of human nature. It's absolutely, it's absolutely mm-hmm. true. I mean, let's face it. Um, in the 1940s, World War II, I mean, the United States is the only country that you know did bomb a country with nuclear weapons. And the, you can argue it, it stopped the war, and it certainly did stop the war. You can argue it saved many more lives. But the reality is, the impression is that nuclear energy is not honorable, and, and it's not a correct 
it's not a correct uh, impression. It's not a correct point of view. It is yes, possible, but right. you've got to have, you've got to have the proper engineering. Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, as you know, because you're an engineer, I'm an engineer. I think people who are generally, even without degrees, engineering-like, they know that progress comes from experimentation, some theoretical research analysis, experimentation, more testing, more theory, more testing, and you evolve these systems. And um, fortunately, I guess, unless there's been a lot of um, secrecy, you can count on one hand the number of major major nuclear incidences oh absolutely i mean and i don't count those cases <clears throat> where you read in the newspaper you wake up you get the morning paper and you say oh wait a minute uh, so and so power plant shut down on an emergency shutdown well that's not a catastrophic event absolutely. an emergency shutdown is like you shutting the power off on your engine because it's getting too hot because you didn't change the oil or the oil is getting bad you shut it down Get, get, get everything calm. You look at what made it shut down and you fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So shutdowns, I don't count as being those inc incidences are the three Mayans, Chernobyl and uh, Fukushima. What's the other? Yeah, the Japanese. Yeah, actually, those are the three ones that I really want to talk because I think in terms of media, in terms of uh, human life or environmental impact, those are the three sure. ones. But one, before we go there, I guess, for people who are not listening, let's talk about nuclear energy. So those famous chimneys that people see on the news and talk about, oh, that's nuclear energy. You're absolutely right. Actually, the reason they look like that, there's nothing to do with nuclear energy. It's actually a structural reason that because they're so tall, the best way of actually being integral without having uh, beans in the middle is actually a mm -hmm. hyperbole. So that's the reason they look like. And there is right. nothing to do with no nuclear energy. Actually, any any plants that you need to release a lot of energy and that inclu includes when you are uh, siderurgy so we are reducing uh, ore to metal and stuff like that all of them have exactly that same shape so that's that's very right. and by the way what's coming out of that is steam so there's nothing to be to have a huge impact i was just going to go there thank you say that more though because <laughs> you see this white plume and all of a sudden people say boy i'm breathing that well this is literally steam yeah so oh so much pollution is like no it's not pollution that's water. Yeah, exactly yeah and let us let's be very even more clear on this when you have a cooling tower like we're talking about you're literally seeing water and only water there is no exhaust there is even even on a power plant that's burning fuel like coal and you've got water that's literally raining down through this tower and there's a communication between the hot air that's cooled something somewhere and the cooling of that water that is then going mm -hmm. to go back to the plant. Mm -hmm. so there is a distinct difference. There's a separation between what's going on in the plant and what's going on in the cooling tower. There's only the steam coming out of that plant. Exactly. And, and, and it comes and, down and to, to be, the education. And to be even more clear, that steam has no physical connection. Actually, usually it's like three loops away of the actual nuclear exactly. materials. Exactly. So you have one loop that we are, so, and again, maybe we're, we're going too fast. So again, nuclear energy, we have a material that is decaying, right? It's uh, unstable and it releases neutrons and protons and usually goes from like thorium and goes down to something that is slightly lighter. Uh, 
uh, also, what is the other one? Uranium. Uranium, and then you release a couple of protons and neutrons, and then you go to plutonium. And in that release, you just release a lot of energy. And that's right. a natural, natural occurring phenomena. And basically, we are taking advantage of that. And of course, there is a process, just like we get iron ore, and we reduce that to just to stay with the iron, there is a process of getting the uranium ore, and then you reduce that to become like a really radiative um, material. And that's what people call the um, uranium enrichment, right? Yep, yep. And usually, and that's, well, maybe we don't go that much in politics, but usually at this point, people already said, start raising flags. Oh, they want to enrich, enrich uh, uranium. And not necessarily that's for weapons. That's the first point. But there we go. That's the few. That's the actual few. And then that decay into something lighter, like uranium goes to plutonium. It releases a lot of energy. That energy, we have a loop. And early on, usually it was water that was like going around. And that's how you gather that energy. And then that water, back then, that water would boil and drive a turbine. And mm -hmm. we evolved. We realized how dangerous it was. And usually there was like two or three loops. So there is one loop of the actual water that is um, releasing the energy or capturing the energy of the nuclear mm -hmm. material. And then there is a second loop of the other water that is actually capture, capturing the energy from the, this first loop. And that second one is actually driving a turbine. And there's a bunch of stuff that goes on there. Usually that first loop nowadays, if it's water, is what they call heavy water. So it's mm -hmm. a slightly different materials better to observe the whatever neutrons the system didn't uh, yep. observe and some even the newer ones this first loop is something so hot like actual lead lead how do you pronounce that lead, lead. molten uh, uh liquefied lead or um uh salt liquid salt and yeah and that's it so this is nuclear energy that's but in the end what I found fascinating when I was in university was realizing that you can have a coal power plant, a natural gas, a nuclear power plant. This, the, how it works fundamentally is the same. That yeah. for me was just yeah. like blew yeah. my mind. It's just like, yeah. oh, what matters is what is producing the heat that we're going right. to turn that into electricity, but the actual ranking cycle brighton cycle they're all I the think. same and that was so fascinating for me and clearly it still is fascinating for me because <laughs> 10 years on and i'm still absolutely in love with this area <laughs> now let, let me um i i agree with everything you just said however for this podcast we should also be educating okay absolutely there is a very very important distinction between using nuclear fuel and fossil fuel or any kind of fuel and that is and you correct me if i'm wrong but nuclear energy is a source i don't want to use the word infinite energy source because it isn't mm -hmm. x pounds of uranium you go e equals mc squared einstein's amazing intellectual leap to determine that mass is energy multiplied by the speed of light squared is the amount of joules or foot pounds, however you want to measure it, is going to be released. The very important distinction is that if I have a pound of coal 
or natural gas or, or hydrogen or any other fuel source, when you combust it, oxidize it, it's gonna reach a temperature, an adiabatic flame temperature. So if you're heating a bucket of water or a bucket of anything, that thing is gonna turn to gas if it's water, let's keep it simple. And you're right, just like you said. However, that water can never get any hotter or the steam can never get any hotter than what the combustion temperatures of that fuel is. It could be five, 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit, could be 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The difference in nuclear energy is that that energy just keeps pouring into something. And that something is absorbing this energy. Yeah. And if that energy coming in is not liberated through convection heat transfers away or conductions away or whatever, it's just going to keep absorbing the energy. And so it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And that's like what happened, unlike any other facility, is what happened with Chernobyl. I mean, he got to the point where anything that was contained, trying to contain this enormously high temperature couldn't contain it anymore. It is the yeah, famous, it's, it is the answer to that famous joke, and, and we've talked about this. You know, someone says that they've discovered something that will dissolve anything. You know, it'll, chemical, I've got a chemical, it'll dissolve anything. And isn't that a great thing for humanity? And then someone, you know, sheepishly in the back of the room says, what, what do you contain it in? What do you hold it in? Then? If it dissolves anything, how do you keep it? How do you keep it controlled? Yeah. And nuclear energy is such that you don't, if you ignore that fact, it's just going to keep going. And literally, the Chernobyl plant, they were worried about it. Literally, talk about the China syndrome, quote unquote, going down into the earth because everything that was trying to support this nuclear reactor was starting to melt. Yeah. And they, in fact, at the end of it all, they started looking at metallurgy because things started to fuse together the lead, the metals, the everything and they said this in a sense not that you would do it in any kind of laboratory but this is the first time they were absorbing absorbing observing uh, metallurgies that were produced in temperatures that were unseen in on, on earth so anyway nor do i wonder what uh, let, me, let me just stop you there for a second because i found the actual quote uh the actual quote is from Sebastian Balibar, director of research of CNRS. And he said, we say that we will put the sun into a box. He was talking about fusion actually, but the idea, we say that we'll put the sun into a box. The idea is pretty. The problem is we don't know how to make the box. Exactly, <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, that is one of the biggest things. I mean, certainly fusion, you look up in the sky on a sunny day, it's happening, that it is. it's there. There's no question yeah. that it can't be done because nature does it. The question is, how do you contain it? How do you put that in a box? <laughs> yeah, how do you magnetize the, 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 the plasma in order to keep it suspended because it can't touch anything, even as exactly. you take it, you know. Anyway. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Because, because that is the key. And, and you're right. Uh, it, it, it's um, uh, controllable. The, the cycles, the thermodynamic cycles that take this energy that's controlled so let's talk about controlled heat, okay? You take this heat that's controllable and you produce it uh, electric power rotating a shaft that's connected to a, to a um, generator or 
you know, there are many submarines and aircraft carriers that are powered with nuclear that drive propellers. You did, yeah, and you just hit you into something see, really good. You don't see many, of course, they're not, they might be 10, 20, 50 megawatts. So they're small machines comparatively mm -hmm. speaking to utilities, but you don't see a rash of those types of machines destroying themselves and destroying the, the people. And um, certainly the, the soldiers and the sailors who are in vicinity of that are well protected. I mean, there's, there's, there's care taken. Um, written, Admiral Rickover, who is basically the father of the nuclear Navy, was in meticulous in his concern over safety of the people. Obviously, I mean, you can't go into battle with people who are going to be ill <laughs> after <laughs> after uh, a voyage, you know. So so um, it's controllable. But I just needed to give you that because that is the one exception. It can get to hellish uh, temperatures. That is yeah, basically let's... not controlled once it continues it's, it's yeah let's put it this way it's probably the only source of energy that you can't turn it off that's it's gonna right. keep going. you you've got to keep it like I, I i'm looking at i i have this image because because i don't know how they do it these bronco riders they've got this bull and it's going in any freaking direction and the bull rider's got to keep you got to hang on to it you got to hang on to it you're going to mm -hmm. break the horse or i don't think they can break the bull but um, so far, except for these three or four, and I don't want to minimize it, nor do you want to, I'm sure, minimize it, it has been controllable. And, and the consequence of Chernobyl, the end of this book that I read, and I've only read the one in, in any detail, says that for all intents and purposes, after the politicians got done with you know, uh, uh, accusing the operators of having failed a test, they blamed the, the, the operators. Many of the operator directors were put in jail, served sentences. But when all of that cleared, most qualified opinion is that there was a design flaw in those machines and, and that those flaws have been fixed. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of the unfortunate lesson learned, the lesson hopefully would have been learned earlier without mm -hmm. the catastrophe of destroying literally I think it's 30 kilometers diameter. Yeah, and, of, and people and everything. Maybe, yeah. it might be 30, uh, I, I think it's diameter, 30 kilometers, about 18 miles of um, uninhabitable land. And then there's even more outside that circle of land yeah. that you just don't do anything with anymore. Exactly, but yeah. Well, I have, a, I, have a ref, I have a ref, reference later for us to, to dig into, but it's literally saying from the international energy, uh, association and is basically like went through everything like what you described and like mm -hmm. literally by virtual means it's impossible to happen again what happened to Chernobyl because of the lessons but not let's not let's not not go there it, that and, fast and, and and the reason why I think that's a very accurate statement because it's you know you can never say 100% the reason why it's because in the engineering science community there is I think a willingness by most people, even those who are in authority, to share this information. Oh yeah. So what went wrong with Chernobyl has to have been and and has now been released. Hence the many books that have been written, not just the one mm -hmm. I've read, Midnight in Chernobyl, 
but the, the many books that have been written about it, um, that information is shared. And um, yeah. and there are I, international I, efforts nowadays. Absolutely. And, uh, at the end, I want to get that into the, the forums that are going on in the future. But before that, let me share my screen here. And people are just listening to this. I'll put that in the blog as well. But I guess this is the thing, I guess, is a good starting point. That is like, why? Why do we want? Like, why we want to play with this boat that is so powerful? Why we want to go there? And I, I thought this image from the... Um, uh us energy information administration is from the data is from making uh, about 2020 for the us sources of energy and i i of course we can take about the, the the whole world but it's a little bit more scattered data so i thought this one was a good one to look because the us is 300 million people and it's a lot of energy consumption per capita and i thought it was a good example and here what we see is that we still today 2020 we're not talking about 20 years ago 10 years ago by 2020, 40% of the energy consumption was natural gas, 19% was coal, 20% nuclear, 1% petroleum, and I guess there is uh, a little asterisk there that we can see what that means after, that I even think that's a little bit too little. And then we have 20% that is renewables, which actually for US, I'm honestly surprised. I didn't know it was that much already of the grid that was 20%. but why well, we they might, i'm sorry they might include in renewables hydro uh power facilities yes yes it's here so in the, in the renewables is broken down to 20 percent is like uh, you know from the 100 percent eight percent is wind hydro is 7.3 solar is 2.3 biomass is 1.4 and geothermal 0.4 percent and i guess without talking the whys and etc the main thing that I want to get here is that, well, we have 80% uh, to cover if we want to make everything renewable. And that's a lot of energy and a lot yeah, of planning. Yeah. And, and also, it's not even, even if we make that 100% renewable, other than the hydro, most of them are seasonal. And yeah. they have a lot of or, like, or, or even daily, and not even talk about even, seasons. It's, exactly, even yeah. daily. It, actually, if we, if we talk season, then we are actually talking that hydro is not as reliable as well, as sure. you can see sometimes in the in the in the west of the USA. And this is the main reason why we want to play with this powerful bowl. It's like we do want to get into a society that is mainly real, re, uh, reliable on renewables. And as you said in the first one, there's no question about this. We don't want to live in a society that is polluted and we are you know, destroying the nature and the animals. No, you got to be really silly to think there is a master plan of people trying to destroy that. No, is that we still, and, and I find that really interesting. The definition of sustainability is being able to solve the problems of the of the present without compromising the future generations to solve their own problems meaning exactly. we can't just put pull the plug it's just like no no no. let's just only rely on those 20 percent and everything else you're not going to use anything else it's like no wait a second how are we going to power hospitals how are we going to keep how are we even going to keep the research going on for the renewables to keep going so there is a big gap there that we need to solve somehow, and that somehow is better use of the current ones and try to master and increase the use of the most powerful thing we have, that is nuclear. 
yeah, yeah. Is it's, that a good summary? Yeah, excellent summary. Very nice. <laughs> That's why I kept quiet while you were doing. <laughs> You're doing such a great job. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it, it's you know nuclear and the renewables. It comes down to. Um, I, I keep using analogies, and yes, analogies is not the best form of argument. I keep imagining uh, a technician, a, a carpenter with a tool belt on, and in that tool belt, there's going to be hammers and, and, and wrenches and you know all the different tools that a, that a carpenter uses, you know, scale and so forth. And, and you'd never think about asking the carpenter only use a hammer or only use a saw. You, you say, use whatever, and not even one cycle saw. They've got many types of saw, you know, cross saw and, and so forth. Um, and the same thing with nuclear energy or energy in general, you, you've got a whole, a whole portfolio of different types and you've got to, and some are better used in some places than others. And you've got to have a means and a protocol, a, a plan to use them in the right places. And nuclear should have a place somewhere. And certainly I believe it should not be ignored simply because of the ignorance. And I don't mean that in any derogatory way, because I'm ignorant about a lot of things. I'm just saying it's a lack of knowledge of something that mm -hmm. you should try to get resolved, learn more about it. So that, as you said, nuclear involves cycles that are used with fossil fuels. The issue has got to be, how do you control the energy so that it's released in a very uniform, controllable way? So that you can absorb the energy as it's being de de delivered to you and not delivered in such a fashion that you can't get rid of the energy. So mm -hmm. nuclear has got to be something that through education, as happens, unfortunately, in a lot of cases through catastrophes, as we saw, but nevertheless, education that is going to help design the next generation. And, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of, I mean, the Department of Energy is under the Department of Energy's auspices is the Atomic Energy Commission, and, and they are doing that kind of research. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm sure and I know that the European community and certainly Great Britain now um, is doing the same, and certainly China is. In fact, in this book, China is quoted as saying they recognize that they can't just keep burning coal the way they're doing, that they're gonna start building nuclear plants. In fact, they're building more nuclear plants now than the United States is, because I think in, in the United States, you need to educate the people to, understand, to get that kind of political approval. Otherwise, politicians are not even going to talk about it during a presidential campaign. You hit the nail in the head there, and that's a point. And I guess that's, a, as we, before offline, we were talking about the COVID and vaccines, et cetera. There is a, something that we need to learn from this pandemic social experiments that we can rush to have the best technological option, but, we also need to have an uh, educational problem. Otherwise we get what is happening out there. You have a, no question. a good portion of the population that is just refusing to take no, the No decision question about it. No because they don't understand. And it's no the same where we're going with nuclear energy. No question about it. I, you know, I, I, I think I might've said this the last podcast. Let me give you an example that really struck home with me. And this was over 20 years ago and it still stuck with me. 20 <laughs> years ago, um, during the campaign with President Bush, who did get elected, a senior, with um, our governor in Massachusetts, um, he, they were running a campaign. The candidate, uh, Mr. Bush, came to the Boston and saw the Boston Harbor was literally polluted. 
okay? And it made a big deal. You know, how can this person, governor of Massachusetts, won for president because he's got a Boston Harbor, a major harbor in Massachusetts, polluted. He can't even tr control his own state. Okay, and he, for whatever, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why uh, Dukakis lost to Bush. But in that communication, during that time, there was a telephone uh, meet a call given by a woman who sounded very old. And the question was, should the, should the Boston, should the state invest in cleaning up the harbor? And that means putting waste uh, treatment facilities on what is now Deer Island in Boston Harbor. And the person called up and said, I, I don't want my money spent on waste treatment facilities. I don't do use my waste treatment facility. I don't need it. And she and the call and the host of the program said, Well, ma'am, where do you live? Well, I live in Boston. And I just, where does the waste go that you comes out of your house? It just goes down the drain. And it's where do you think it goes? You know, <laughs> no, the, the point I'm trying to make is people have to be educated in some of this somewhat engineering science technology. And I truly believe that everybody can understand what is the need for a water treatment facility in a civilized community like Boston and so forth and all the country. Likewise, they need to understand, yes, there are good and bad about nuclear and, and we're covering the bad, but you can't just eliminate that as a power source because it literally says to the carpenter, don't use a hammer today, do mm -hmm. something else and, and say, okay, then we're not going to build this house fast enough. Exactly. So I think I go we one step further than, than you, Frank. I think <clears throat> nuclear is the key. I think if we want to decarbonize, and there is a huge reasons why we want to decarbonize, not necessarily the greenhouse uh, emissions. There's a whole a whole reasons that goes all the way from social and uh, how they call that countries economic. social economic. No, the uh, the security of the country, how they call that, is a matter of uh, national security. It's a matter of social security because nuclear is probably one of the only ones that you can buy. Like, a, let's say you can buy a full ship out of uranium and you're good to go for like 50 years. That's one, one possibility. So in terms of like you don't rely, like I think the ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I was just like, we, need to, exactly. we cannot rely on one on one okay. place that is known to, for being difficult to navigate. We cannot rely the whole logistics of the world there or like half of it. But anyway, where I'm going with this is, this is important. I think is a uh, very, very key in the next hundred years, but people need to understand. and. It doesn't do any good. And let me show you this. And again, people who are only listening, I'll put that in the. We have this kind of propaganda <laughs> that for me. Oh, is yeah, just... oh see, there's the iconic cooling tower. Exactly. I mean, seriously. No, think about this for a second. And, and now, maybe we've talked about it too much. But how powerful is this this marketing campaign when even me, I look at a tower like this and now. Immediately, I'm thinking nuclear, and mm -hmm. I understand that that's not the case. This tower exactly. would be very much somewhere in the middle of Kansas, where there's not a 
a supply of water that like a stream or a lake or an ocean, certainly in Kansas, and, and as a source of energy, a source of um, cooling for this facility. So this could be a power plant that's that's generating power using a gas turbine. Exactly. Or well, maybe it's not even a, a nuclear power plant there. It's just a chimney. We don't even know. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you again, I don't want to put the kibosh on wind turbines, but I look at that left side where it says love, and I think to myself, I could think to myself, boy, look at all the birds that are being killed by this wind turbine. Exactly. You know, exactly. Can you say, look at all the wind is going to be stopping the the turning of the earth. You, you, you could come up with some amazing arguments for not having wind. I mean, yeah. literally, you take this energy, this kinetic energy out of the wind. Now, what happens to the turning and the speed of the earth? And you say, well, nothing happens. Don't be crazy about this. You know, yeah. we don't have wind anymore. <laughs> so, you know, obviously, you've got um, marketing that is a science onto itself and its mm -hmm. purpose is to promote a certain idea. Whether you're buying magazines with red covers, because that's apparently what people like to see, and they'll buy red covers. Anything that shows red on a magazine, they tend to be attracted to it, the humans, I guess. <laughs> but but you're right. I mean, this is amazing as far yeah, as so people, For people who are just listening to this, we're, we're looking for what was a, a piece of marketing from Greenpeace that they were literally mailing people in the UK uh, 10 years ago that, in the left side, there is offshore wind turbines. Probably these turbines are like 50 meters high and with the word love and it's all blue and pretty. And on the right, we have a chimney that we assume is nuclear, but we don't actually know as we no, talk. You don't know. And no, there is a chimney there with smoke coming out of it that as yep. we talk, that is yep. steam actually. It's just water with the word hate. And in the bottom, there is two reasons to join Greenpeace. Yeah. So and for this conversation, that's also, two reasons for me to not like Greenpeace. <laughs> but you, you notice also on the right side portion, I mean, you're you got the sun in, in the background. So the clear white steam turns out and looks dark like it's exhaust. Yeah. You know, exactly. so there's so exactly. many subtleties. It's unfortunate. But that's where, like you said, it comes down to educating people. And, mm -hmm. you know, people are busy with running their lives they, they're doing different things and and they have a good time sometimes to to understand and, and appreciate the science um i'd like to think that if uh, i know in the united states the populace elects the congress and the senate and the presidents and so forth and so on who are the ones who ultimately from a national federal point of view make a decision mm -hmm. and, um, you'd like to think that people will learn about different things so that if an advocate a politician a politician is running for an office he or she says something you weigh what he or she she says about nuclear or wind or whatever uh energy source there is and and justly vote for or against that person mm -hmm. um, I, I gotta tell you something you know we have a new president in the united states as you know as everyone knows mm -hmm. president biden and um, i don't want to express my conservative, not conservative, liberal, whatever point of view. But certainly he is, from his speech on Wednesday, is more liberal than others have been, okay? Mm -hmm. And in a very real sense, he could be a president who could suggest the nuclear energy 
its time has come to renew the opportunities that nuclear energy has. Why? Because generally, I think I'm safe to say that generally the more liberal people in the population would say nuclear, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, it's mm-hmm. too too risky. But if you have a liberal president, Saying he's that. got a lot of admiration who says, you know, let's think about this. And I think it's good. I think mm-hmm. it's okay. I and, think... and I'm going to give you an, I'm going to give you an equivalence of that. Mm-hmm. China opened up in the United States only when Nixon, a conservative, you know, anti-communist, anti-everything that had mm-hmm. to do with, you know, communism and so on. When he went to China and said, you know, even though I'm a conservative, I like the idea of talking to China. Getting, I think there's a lot of benefits from everyone so, here. So you always have to have, I think, a politician who is, in this case, liberal, who would you think have issues with nuclear and say, you know, I'm convinced there's a need for it. Because yeah. this president has said that by 2050, we will be basically carbon neutral. And not having fossil fuel powered automobiles and, you know, greening of America. And, and, um, and I don't know how you do it. Yeah, me too. You, you, part of, into the picture. That's a really good point. And, um, and it, it got us a lot to unpack there. Like here in the UK, they already signed. So that's the thing. By 2030, all cars must be electric. Yeah, amazing. Um, it's an amazing statistic, by the way. And I'm, 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 I'm like, how are we going to make it? Like, honestly, I like, and again, people are just thinking about, oh, this is great. We're not going to have pollution and blah, blah, blah. But wait a second, where these batteries are coming from? Have you ever seen a picture of like a, like a nickel, a nickel ore mining? It is just like the complete destruction of earth. You look at the mining facility and you're just like, I don't want to be part of this. Well, but if you want to rely on that many batteries, that's going to increase by right. orders of magnitude, not a little bit, more orders right. of magnitude of that That's growing right. up. It, it, so I'm it's like, scary. It's, you know, I, I haven't studied it in great detail. I, I've looked at it. The the amount of energy used to make the bed, the mining, the, the what do you do with the batteries after they've been um, uh, uncharged and, and need to be disposed of? There's a lot of things that there is technical literature on. I haven't mm-hmm. looked at it in great detail. I know that there is issues there. Mm-hmm. And there's only certain places in the world where they can mine the lithium and the cadmium and so forth. Um, yeah. Are you politically going to support, you know, it gets into all of different messes of things. So you've got to be very, very cautious. Yeah, absolutely right. But well, trying to keep for the nuclear, I fully agree with you. I think, I think that's something social media got it right in terms of like, popularizing some opinions is the idea of having influencers, having mm-hmm. people that kind of represent an idea and that kind of person like buys into an idea. I guess that's the way to go. And uh, you're right, maybe having a, liber- a liberal president to talk about nuclear is a good point. Uh, and, uh, one, I was gonna say, I, I think you're looking at the clock, but let me let me say one thing. If indeed, I, I find it amazing that a poly- of any government can say to a company, they will not be able to build X, Y, or Z in the next years. They didn't even say that to the buggy whip manufacturers. It just mm-hmm. happens that after a while, there is not a need for buggy whips, okay? And, mm-hmm. and so they 
then didn't have people making them because cars came along and you need the horses to pull your carts in. So I'm finding it amazing. But if they do do that, I got to tell you, is I keep cars for 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, okay? And I'll even have them more now because I don't drive as much. But mm-hmm. I'm going to start investing in automobiles. Put them <laughs> in your garage. Because I got to believe that when the time comes that there isn't an internal combustion engine driven powered car, that those those relics from the 20s and the the twenty twenties and the and, and earlier are going to be worth their weight in gold. Because oh, I, don't yeah, absolutely. People, I don't think people are going to want to give up. You know, you know that you know that joke that uh, you know a hundred years ago the common man would have a, a horse and rich people have a, a car. And yeah. now rich people have horses and poor people yeah, have cars. Exactly. And like in more, more 50 years, I guess, normal people have electric cars and only the rich people would be able to afford like a diesel engine. They'll, they can just drive everywhere right. and they need to rely on the grid. That's right. <laughs> so that's a great idea of investment, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, seriously, if you had no space for it, because I can't see anybody, a car enthusiast, certainly, um, giving it up. I mean, when you think about it, an internal combustion engine with all the moving parts is an amazing piece of engineering, an amazing piece of engineering where today they have guarantees, warranties that are 100,000 miles, mm-hmm. 150,000, three years, five years, you know, service, because they figured this machine is not failing. You have the computer fail before. In fact, if mm-hmm. anything, they better watch where the chips are going to come from for these electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Because then they're going to need a whole lot of power control for that. <laughs> a whole lot of power control. Cool. So back to nuclear. I guess we kind of cover, I guess, well, why the need and why we got to go there. So let's talk about the scary stuff. Let's talk about the actual accidents, what happened there, and the waste. I guess that, those are the two main com- com- complaints and what people get scared. You talked about something really cool. I'm, I'm, I was trying to reach out to someone on LinkedIn. Actually, how does think on the podcast is get to find guests? I can tell you how many times I talked to, invited someone who I find interesting, who's like an engineering manager or a PhD or something, and they literally tell me I have nothing to say. I don't think I'm, I'm going to be a good guest. Um, so <laughs> being in the part of the education, I guess there's a lot of the engineers like, please speak up. Like we, yeah, we need yeah, people who know absolutely. their scientific background to speak up. So uh, yeah, that's, that's my plea. Absolutely, but, absolutely. So let's talk about the three main, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so let's go. I have a little paragraph here for each one of them, but I guess let's start with Chernobyl because that's the main one we're gonna be talking about. So the incident was 26, April 26th of 1986 in mm-hmm. the city of Chernobyl, 130 kilometers from Kiev in Ukraine. And the reactor type is uh, RBMK. I'm only going to say that because I don't know how to pronounce the actual name, so only the initials. Uh, the capacity was 1,000 megawatts, 1,000 megawatts electricity. Mm-hmm. And reactor generation is a generation two, and later we can talk about it. So air. RBMK reactor is a Soviet design of a boiling light water reactor where the water acts as a coolant and provides the steam that drives the turbines. Are we saying? So that means there's only one, one, uh, one loop. Mm-hmm. A really particular characteristic of this reactor is that when we increase the quantity of steam bubbles, what we call in this kind of design a positive void coefficient, yeah. the core yeah. 
reactivity increases. And this is a, a very key point. So basically, we, we imagine like we have a grid, right? And that's the reactive material is releasing heat and the water as flows through get that heat. What happens is some that water might start boiling. And what people don't realize that actually the vapor has a less uh, heat Absorbing capacity it. Right. than the water. So if you have a lot of bubbles, you actually increase the reactivity because the water is not capturing as much energy and therefore right. the whole temperature of the core goes higher. And it goes that, higher. Yeah, <laughs> so that's one of the key points there. So in the time of the event... Can I, are, are you reading from um, Adam Higginbotham's? Like, who, who's quoting? Where are you reading from? From uh, a, a small research that I did myself a couple oh, of years okay, ago. Okay. So literally, I captured some stuff and wrote a couple of paragraphs it's about each one of them. It, 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 the, the book I read on Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam, I'm looking at it here, Adam Higginbotham, H-I-G-G-I-N-B-O-T-H-A-M. Uh, he actually has a couple of pages on this whole void fracture. Oh, cool. mm -hmm. so I think it's yeah, mentioned I, by a number of different authors. Yeah, I think he, he's one of my reference, actually, when I by the time I wrote this. But, well, onward. In the time of the event, there was a routine shutdown programmed. The operators decided the, to use this opportunity to test the plant. Although the shutdown did not happen when it was programmed, uh, the operator decided to keep the test anyway. Therefore, the automatic shutdown mechanisms and emergency cooling system were disabled. Here is the first, the first error when things start to go wrong. There was the test supposed to happen at a certain hour. It didn't. They decided to keep it anyway. Now, because of that, they had a lot of emergency alarms that they deliberately shut it down. So, yes, there was a design flaw. Yeah, but this, for me, just shows a complete yeah. lack of uh, security policies. Yeah. Just, for, just for this initial phrases. But onward. Um, in an effort to compensate problems and increase the power, the operators withdraw many control rods, less than minimum pos permissible stipulated in the operating procedures. Again, another very bad security flaw, security policy. They started the test and some more problems resulted in boiling at the bottom of the core. This void formation increased the power even more. The power continued to rise, then few elements ruptured leading to more steam generation. And again, here we are in a point that there is no coming back. The reaction has started. And because of the design of, you know, it's generating more, more energy, more steam. So there is, no, there is no coming back from this. The overpressure ended up in a steam explosion followed by a second explosion. And they're not fully sure to this day, but probably the second ex explosion was caused by production of hydrogen. And that's maybe worth, and you can tell in much more details than I do, Frank, that when you have a lot of pressure water and that becomes steam and you keep producing energy there, mm -hmm. uh, there's a very, I, I, a big likelihood that there's just so much energy that you start dissociating the hydrogen yep. and the oxygen and yep. you start producing hydrogen, which is a highly flammable uh, component, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then... The main reason for the Chernobyl incident, the largest uncontrolled radioactive release into the environment in history, is a total, and that 
uh, that's quoting myself. So there is no, if there is anyone to get in trouble here, that's me, is the total inexistence of safety culture. The sequence of events demonstrated a huge operational fails and the particular design of the reactor showed up as a technical problem to restart control. Two, or, two workers died uh, as results of the explosions and 28 more people uh, between workers and firemen died in the weeks after due to the direct radiation poisoning. It is estimated that from 4,000 to 25,000 people have died due to the radiation exposure. And however, a lot have changed due to, this, to the accident, including in the political field. It's allowed the development of a culture of safety in the Soviet Union, an increased collaboration between East and West, West and West and East countries, and good investments in providing the existing reactors. And as I said, there is a uh, my reference here that I'm going to put in the blog as well, and I quote them: "A repetition of the 1986 Chernobyl accident is now virtually impossible." Mm -hmm. It's always scary when I hear that. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. very good. I, it's always scary when I hear someone say, I don't care what it is, science or literature or uh, theater, or it's impossible. It's impossible to have a better actor do this part. It's impossible to, <laughs> impossible. <laughs> it's always scary when you say that. But I understand, you know, at the moment, uh, you know, you're in Let's the Let's put it this way. We're not saying, we're not saying that it's impossible to happen a nuclear yeah. event again. It's impossible that one to happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, um, you've in the in the excerpts that you read or the notes that you've taken, you've made a clear case that it sounds more like um, operator failure or operator mismanagement of the testing protocol than a design flaw. Um, and let's put it this way, not pointing fingers because actually for the operator to have that kind of freedom to do that, that's yeah, a problem not yeah. of the operator himself because right. a good safety policy actually virtually does not allow you to take that kind of freedom. Like we, you would yeah. need clearance from the president himself to keep doing, to turn off this kind of stuff. So you just have, a, you build in, uh, well, in product design, we call that uh, do me proof, do yeah. me proof. Yeah. So we, for this kind of stuff, you need to make doomy proof. It doesn't matter what the operator thinks. Yeah. You just you know, in in reading this again, I, I refer back to the book because the one that I've uh, focused on, uh, Midnight in Chernobyl. Um, he makes a case that there was a combination, a congruence of operator failure and then design failure. Okay, um, something was waiting for the other thing to happen. So the operators, like you just said. Um, they tested going to a higher power than they were supposed to. They also tested later in the morning because they're on a different shift. So they were bright awake and bushy tailed to, to operate. But let's face it, they're on the midnight shift from like a 12 midnight or 11 o'clock to the 8 o'clock in the morning. So depending on what you were doing that day, and the author of this book makes a case that some of the people were doing normal stuff during the day, which means they didn't get to sleep. Anyway, so the testing was supposed to start at two o'clock in the morning or closer to midnight, and it didn't happen until like four, five, six o'clock in the morning. And people are tired, people are ready to go home, people are ready to shift change. And um, so things started, to, and someone said, let's test. And other people said, well, I don't want to test now. But the person in charge said, no, we're testing now because 
we've got to get this done because someone in Moscow says we've got to do this. Not like it. It's not what I like that we didn't run the test by this time. Things started to happen, and there was a case where they started to put the control rods, the thing that abates the nuclear fission, the graphic root control rods come down, and they find that they're putting it down, but somehow, like you said, this void fraction had started, and the core is getting hotter anyway, and somehow the control rods weren't able to slow this down as it normally would have if they had not avoid not cause this void fraction thing and and i gotta tell you i love this book but i gotta tell you that there is some pieces from an engineering point of view that is i seem it seems to be missing or it's just me that i don't quite understand it and and i would have loved to have seen more drawings sketches of what mm-hmm. they were talking about that causes this void fraction thing but nevertheless um it is true that the steam, unlike the water, is not able to absorb this this radiation, and hence does not temper the continuous um, uh, emission of radiation, which ultimately gets the core hotter and hotter. And you're containing again; it gets down to temperature. You're containing the nuclear material, and if the containment vessel starts to fail, then you've got water leaking where it's not supposed to, and then you get it, it makes things worse. Yeah, so, and. And just a point like that you did that is really good is that I guess sometimes people don't realize that in hindsight, it's easy to judge. Like oh, the absolutely. thing that happened between the oh, that plane that was going from Brazil to Paris and, and failed yeah. just because absolutely. like the pitot the was um, was frozen and then therefore they didn't know the, the yep. velocity that they were going. In hindsight, it's easy to say, oh, how they didn't know that? Like you need to understand that the guys were operating they didn't have a camera to see what's going on in the reactor. What happens in the engineering point of view is like they have a bunch of lights at that point. Well, in the 80s, a bunch of like literally lights that turn on and off, depending on the pressure, depending on the temperature, and they need to interpret them and not only interpret them, but you need to understand sometimes that's a false positive or false negative. So there is a myriad of things that could result. And as you said, they didn't know at this point. Usually you have the reactor, the, the reactive material releasing protons. And you, put, as you said, you put graphite to observe that. And therefore you decrease uh, the velocity of the nuclear um, uh, reaction. Mm-hmm. They are doing that, but it was not decreasing the temperature. And they're like, okay, let's put more. And at some point that was even worse to generate. But again, they, they didn't know it was already generating steam because they didn't know it was already that hot and there is a yeah. bunch of reasons so it's a uh, yeah it's hard it's uh, it's really hard i don't i don't i don't think there was a as i said it was a an incident waiting to happen yeah Actually. it's unfortunate it, it, it's like you said monday morning quarterbacking as it says in the united states we say that um you're not there you don't know how you would react even with the proper training but when something like this goes bad i mean it goes bad pretty quickly and mm-hmm. now you've got human beings who cannot possibly be thinking about all the different emergency switches that have been programmed whether it be hardwired or by computers that have been programmed by people who did have time to think about all the possible ways that something could go wrong mm-hmm. but we're only human and it, you may not have caught the way this is going wrong when you've got X, Y, and Z now combined with W, A, and B. 
you know, and 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 something might have been missed. And so Absolutely. when you've got a PowerPoint like this going on, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, the, when I hear about emergency shutdowns, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief because then I know that the controls that were designed by someone over the last many, 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 many years for this power plant worked, that something went out of normal, temperatures, pressures, flow rates, whatever it might have been, something went out of normal, and maybe that wasn't going to be a catastrophic cause of something, but because it's out of normal, the logic that was developed years ago said, shut down, calm everybody down, everybody get a cup of coffee, and let's figure out what the heck is going on here, but let's shut yeah. down this plant. And and when things go to the point where it's not going that way, and now human has to make a decision at the control panel, and there's three or four and six and eight people in that control room, you say, hopefully everybody knows what's going on. And that's tough. It's very tough. And you're absolutely right. That's the thing. And I guess, well, I know we are already passing a little bit of time, but one of the things I think I wanted to show today or explain and we can discuss about it is what is not so this is what in terms of generations it's the reactors that have been designed in the 60s and the 70s that's generation two and this reactor specifically is one of them and now we are talking about generation four exactly uh, currently exactly. we are in generation three, three plus the ones that are being mm. built right now and now we're talking about the generation four who are supposed to start being operated a little bit, but around 2030, so in in uh, 10 years. And it, we have been talking about this for the past 30 years. So there's a lot of research. And the key point for Generation 4 are two for me. The main one is, in terms of safety, is the absolute reliance on passive safety systems, meaning when something happened, it's not a person that no, presses a button, have been designed to a point that Oh, there is a leak here. If there is, if the pressure goes down in this pipe, the whole that entire part of the plant just poof, shuts down. Yep. It's self-contained yep. and it's gonna stay there. So it's not. And then the operator is gonna say, like, I don't know why that shut down. We're gonna realize what is going on. And then what what you just said, like, then they go there to find out. But that's the the biggest point of this fourth generation. And the second one, going a little bit about the waste that we barely talk about. Usually, most of the nuclear power plants we use uranium that goes decompose or release some uh, protons and neutrons and goes to plutonium. This generation four has such a unique kind of design that now we are actually using plutonium as fuel. So what yeah. you what was waste thirty years ago yeah, exactly. now is actually still fuel. So not only we can use an enormous amount of radioactive uh, waste that have been, you know, deployed some in other places, but the uranium that we still have and we still have a lot can be used to for much longer. Mm -hmm. Yep, and you're right. I mean, Generation Four is 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 going to be developed and, and and implemented. Hopefully, hopefully, and you're absolutely right about the controls. There is just too many things that are going on simultaneously that need to have immediate response and a human being can't do it. And, and we've known that since the times of the, the first space flights. I mean, mm -hmm. a rocket on a test plant pad gets into internal controls and there's pressures and temperatures and flow rates and, and everything that even a, 
a well-planned um, control room in Houston can't with with 20 and 40 and 60 people looking at monitors they can't pick everything up it has to be yeah. done very quickly that's mm -hmm. why again like i said and you saw this in the artemis rocket test that happened about a month ago it was to it was to fire the test for eight minutes and two mm -hmm. minutes into the test okay the, sh the engine shut down and the press went a little nuts about saying well it's a failure no i, I said that's not a failure a failure was if you know, hopefully it never happens, is if there's a person on top of this missile and this happens and the launch occurs and somewhere between zero ground and 100 miles up, the missile fails. That's a failure. But yeah. on the test plan, it went, it shut down because they destroyed material. They tested mm -hmm. with the same machine. It could have been simple pressure switch to shut yeah. things down. But yeah. you're absolutely yeah. right. It has to be done. Yeah and put some faith and the question is has the human beings who are many more than just one been able to look at all the possible consequences all the possible routes of failure and that sometimes can never happen until you've put something in place mm -hmm. and that thing that you didn't think would happen that couldn't be summed up with the train of events all the positives and the negatives coming together in one stream that said it looked like I didn't think this was going to happen with all these sequences all stacked up in the correct order. It did happen. And you say, mm -hmm. I didn't count for it. So now mm -hmm. I'll put that logic strain, uh, string into my logic. And if X, Y, Z, the yeses and the noes, the ones and the zeros come together in this fashion, I'll know to shut down the next time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And just to kind of close the loop there in Chernobyl, another thing that was a clear uh, problem was the lack of communication and something that really increased and that's why i'm sharing my screen here and again for people who are not seeing this i'll put that in the blog is the generation four international forum that's a forum of research that happens every year is founded by 13 countries including the us and brazil off you go in the uk and many others and also the euroton meaning representing all the 28 european union members and they coordinate forums and they have PhD positions and etc. And these are the people who keep researching every year to for the reactors that we are going to build okay. in 10 years time. So this is and Russia is there and China is there and the US is there. So everybody who's actually thinking about this is here. So this is again, what happened in Chernobyl was ugly and terrible. And we hope never happens again. And probably we're taking all the steps. Clearly, we have so, the international so, collaboration. So, Diago, so, Diago, I know mm -hmm. in Boston, in the summer at Fenway mm -hmm. Park, famous, famous ball game, ball field, there will be a concert for Billy Joel. And a number of different people are now mm -hmm. planned to be there. Okay. I do not know about this Gen 4 conference until you just mentioned it. And yet it is so much more important that people mm -hmm. understand that this is going on, that people are professional physicists, engineers, theoreticians, academics, that they're getting together on a yearly basis, annual basis, and they're coming up with the, as much as can be done perfected by human beings, they're coming up with a better machine. Mm -hmm. And yet there won't, I, is there going to be any press about this at the end of the conference? Clearly I not. I, I, I suspect I, not. I, preparing for this podcast, I found out about the forum, and I believe I'm 
kind of passionate about the, the subject. I didn't yeah, know about yeah. it. And it's I, mean, I have to admit, I, I knew there was a Gen 4 um, committee because I read this book and it talks about it. It talks about Generation 4 machines. I don't re I didn't realize, and it does say in the book that they do meet on a regular basis, but mm -hmm. I don't see any advertisements. And now if I yeah. were a person in nuclear engineering, I would know about it. But again, it's the general public. But it needs, needs to be to more than that, as I said. Absolutely. Needs to be more. And not even then, let's talk about closure to us, like your students. If someone gets passionate about this, they have fully funded master and PhD thesis in a bunch of universities around the world because that's something important for the human race. Yeah. We want yeah. to research this I, and we I, want to control you, this beast. <laughs> there, there are not as many, as far as I know, there are not as many graduate programs in nuclear engineering as no, there was no. in the 60s. And maybe even yeah. into the seventies. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you you go into the Rasmussen study, you know, where they had he stacks up all the probabilities of something happening, and you know what happens with probabilities and statistics? You can almost do anything you want with that. Almost, I I, I respect the Rasmussen uh, document, but at the same time, you've got to understand the assumptions made when you make predictions based on probability. Um, it is true. That scared the heck out of you. I mean, it was like, uh, okay, it was a good chance that this is going to happen within the next 10 years, a you know, catastrophic accident, and many, many, many during those 10 years. So um, it, it comes down to education. It comes down to someone championing this, and you don't hide the facts when they're not in your favor, so to speak. Like I said before, you've got to admit that if you have a nuclear reactor uncontrolled, the temperatures are not bounded at this point, like I said before. Mm. And that's an yeah. unfortunate thing. And and that's yeah. the consequence of this nuclear energy. Yeah. But at the same time, it's um it's what drives the nuclear energy as being a reasonably good prime mover for power generation. That's true. All of the other things. <clears throat> yeah. So and and just, I guess, as a closing note, two final points that I want to make. One of them, we're talking about 1986. That's 35 years ago. But 10 years ago, in 2011, we have Fukushima. So that's not, we're not talking about Soviet Union, et cetera. But here, it's another unique case that I think we need to make the point. That is, uh, so let me just go through what happened there. So it happened March 11 of 2011 in Okuma, Fukushima, Japan. And the reactor, reactor type is a boiling water reactor. So basically, the boiling water reactor is a similar to a pressure water reactor. And the main difference is that the pressure is slightly lower to permit the water to actually boil. And in this kind of generator, there is just one circuit of water, which acts as a cool reactor, and the steam drives the turbine. Again, that's a generation two. That, that's not what we're implementing right now. And March 11, 2011, an earthquake of magnitude nine, which is a lot, that's enormous. Yeah. That's enormous. Yeah, I guess it goes all the way to ten, right? That's mm. probably as as big well, as it gets. As high as I've, I've heard. In fact, but go ahead. So apparently, any no serious damage was done to the reactors. You sure. but units one to three automatically shut down in response to the earthquake. Up until here, all good. Now we go to what we talked before, Frank. The external power supply were lost due to the right. earthquake, so the emergency diesel reactors started up to keep running the cooling system, the residual heat removal. As Frank was saying before, we need to keep this energy down. So we have a secondary system to generate electricity, actually, to just to run the cooling system. What happened next? 
After some time, two tsunami waves hit the power plant, submerging and damaging the seawater pumps and the diesel generators, as well as inundated the electrical situar uh, batteries. Uh, the operators were unable to deal with all these events in a blackout. As a result, units one, two, and three had hydrogen explosions, partial core melting, and some radioactive material released to the air. The authorities ordered an evacuation of the area, and subsequently, the area was extended. So before we go any further, I looked, looked it up, and fair enough, it already went through a very hard earthquake, and now we get hit for two tsunamis. And just to make the point, when they did the design of the Fukushima power plant, they imagined it would survive this the biggest tsunami event at that point. There was a tsunami that happened in Chile, and they were like, okay, if the worst tsunami in history happens, Fukushima still would be so far away of the ocean that it would be fine, etc. So this yeah. one was actually the biggest tsunami that we ever had in in history in recent history. So it's I get it, it's an event, but no one died. Uh, there was some it was, it was a major event, but we can see the difference in the scale sure, from what sure. happened to Fukushima. Like pretty much in terms of nature. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, <laughs> yeah. and still was not as bad, and no one actually died. Of course, there was the environmental impact that some of them out core, et cetera, et cetera. But it already shows, like, yeah, people saying, oh, only 10 years ago, we already had another event. But yeah, it's not in the same scale. Yeah. And look at this. Yeah, I, I remember that very, very clearly. You, you did a good summary of it. Um, they also had planned, as you said, for a tidal wave incident, and they had built some kind of partition and means of keeping those emergency generators dry. But because of the extent of that tidal wave being much better, much bigger than they had experienced in history, um, apparently some of the water did flood the emergency generator sets, and that was really the key to the failure. Without the mm -hmm. emergency generator sets, everything pumps and nothing is then operational. Mm -hmm. um, interesting enough, I think there is a controversy even now today, so many years later, how many years, like nine years later? Chinese, 10 years. 10 years mm -hmm. that um, there's, a, a, I guess the Japanese have, have captured, they, they, they stored all the radioactive water and they now want to release it. And, and there's a controversy there. But, <laughs> but I would definitely separate the Chernobyl from, the, uh, from that. Uh, experience because there is some question about well could you have built the walls higher could you have put the generators higher could you have stored battery power somewhere yeah there's always could you have yes should you have well then it gets down to well how far do you go exactly uh, i mean they already way. designed to the worst wave ever recorded right. in history at the time and then something worse happened it's just like you cannot build any building assuming September 11 is going to happen. You cannot well, design exactly. every single okay. building assuming that there will be the worst case scenario happening. Otherwise, you're right. never going to build anything. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's it's easy for us to say here, talking like this, and we do respect the um, not only the, the civilians outside, but there was an amazing amount of bravery. Oh, absolutely. operators. Amazing oh, amount of sacrificing of lives. I mean, they, as I understood it from when it happened, I remember the stories that we had Jap the, the Japanese operators, literally the technicians, 
gave themselves up, essentially, is the only way you can say it, because they mm -hmm. knew the radiation was exorbitant. It was going to be much more than they should be able to take in order to get pumps working again, in order to get to the f generators and try to see if they can resolve this, you know, f take the water out of the generator sets and um, amazing amount of um, sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so it's easy for us to, yeah, it's easy for us to say, I know at this point, to say, well, then shouldn't they have built it? twice as high the, the the wall or shouldn't they put these on pedestals and shouldn't it yeah maybe but how well, we did it at a point where do you start exactly where you draw where the line yeah and I, and also something that i i remember that was really beautiful that happened right in the aftermath of the incident was uh elder people like above 60 and 70s uh volunteering to work in the plant because their understanding is that they would not have time enough to feel the effects of radiation. So That's they would rather themselves work there. Wow. So the young people don't need to work there. And, yeah. uh, and these people would feel, and I was just like, this is so beautiful. This is such, yeah, as you said, like an example that. that's, that's of bravery. Yeah, that's amazing. I hadn't heard that, that, that um, situation. Yeah, that's it's really, amazing. really beautiful. Yeah. So that's, I guess- That's a human, that's a human um, neighbor, societal thing i mean I, I don't want to bring the whole religion into it but um that's a civilization that uh, humanity can be proud of exactly exactly that's where uh i guess th there is a lot of nihilism nowadays in the world and actually i'm oh, absolutely proud of this kind of situations the incredibly amazing human beings yeah. that you know in this face of this enormous problems they just like take the burden and just like i'm gonna do this even if that takes my life. And that's just beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very good. So hopefully, and that is, I think, the last one, 2011. I don't yeah, think that was it. Since and then. that was it. Yeah. I mean, no, like I said, there's been, there's been shutdowns, but those I, I see a routine. Yeah, it uh, happens every time. And actually, yeah. well, I know we already went well over the time, and I don't want to keep yeah, I think taking you got two broad, you got two podcasts out of this. Yeah, and I don't want to keep taking your Saturday. And by the way, thanks again for agreeing to do no, this on a Saturday. We're doing this. We should we should do it again. Oh yeah. Oh, soon enough I'm gonna be bothering you again. <laughs> Very good. So I guess in a closing note, I guess this was our honest effort. I guess there is someone who said, and I'm not gonna remember the quote exactly, but it's like it's not like I'm against wind energy or against whatever and pro nuclear. I'm just pro mathematics. So yeah, when yeah. you make the numbers, you're just like, right. what are you going to no, do with I, it? You're right. Like I said, you, you got to use all the tools in your tool belt. You've got to use them wisely. You're not using a hammer when a screwdriver is going to be used. You're not using a yeah, saw right. when a crowbar is going to be used. But at the same time, you cannot just sit by and allow the misinformed information to overcome the reality of the situation and the, and the truth of it. I mean, there is good, bad, and ugly about everything. And, and you can't have just one opinion and one point of view. And hopefully people understand that, uh, at least for, from my point of view, and I think I can speak for you, that we're, I think, interested in keeping uh, people um, healthy, w wealthy and wise, as they the as say, but, in, but certainly healthy and, and wise. That's what it comes down to. And, mm -hmm. and I think it means um, understanding the situation, learning as much as you can. Uh, hopefully this is helpful, if only to have some people read on their own, get the information on their own.
Exactly. But the reality is when you look like you showed on that painting or that picture of both the love is equal to wind turbines and hate is equal to whatever that water tower was, that cooling tower was. <laughs> that's not good. That's not yeah, information. It's not. That's, that's just that's that's, that's literally looking, that's literally getting to your toolbox. Yeah. Let me get the screwdriver away and we're gonna figure it out later. I just don't like right. the screwdriver. Right. Like you should not. You sustainability is not two plus two equals four. It's not. Sustainability is a very complex problem and it requires very intricate and a miscellaneous solution, actually. Right. I think the only fair way of judging what is what on either side of the argument is education. Educate yourselves. And and I'm doing Absolutely. it. I, I'd like to look at, you know, I'm looking into what about these electric vehicles? What happens to the battery? Is it good? Is it bad? I mean, let's not fool ourselves. I mean, exactly. And again, it's not being ourselves. against the electric cars. Actually, exactly. I have a very close friend who has a Tesla. It's an amazing car, but it's like, what is the impact? What did, why, why the rush to like now by right. 2030? I, I, is anyone making the calculations like where does R is coming from? What is the impact on society? It's like, I don't see anyone talking about this. Just like, yeah, I, I think we should go electric. Like, no, it's not that easy. It, yeah, and it, yeah. It's not that simple. It, 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 the people, you need to separate the political rhetoric from the real academic value of an argument. Well, mm -hmm. politics gets involved certainly so, so with everybody because everybody's aware of it. You know, we're all mm -hmm. governed by a particular government. Um, and politically, it's not necessarily science, uh, despite <laughs> what people might say. It's not, I, I know they have political science courses in school, but there's not a Newton's law. But usually it's not that, so that, and honestly, sometimes when I think about it from the engineering point of view, it's just like how you get the most important decisions in a country made by a person who won a popularity contest. If you remember back in school, the most popular kid usually was not the brightest. Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so I'm just yeah, like, it's actually kind of amazing. Yeah, the one who got elected was the one who went to uh, into the auditorium with the, everybody ready to listen. And he said, there will be no homework. The lunches will be free. You'll be able to start school whenever you want if you elect me. Exactly. And <laughs> so it's just like, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. But there was no way that that person was involved <laughs> that. Uh, that's an extreme example. But sometimes you wonder, you wonder about yeah. Yeah. no reciprocating engines in the year 2050. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm like. I'm starting to save hard. my cars. I'm starting to save my <laughs> my cars, and I'll get rid of the bitcoins because uh, I don't know about bitcoins. I think I think automobiles in the garage are going to be a better investment. Absolutely. Well, on that ending note, I'm going to stop recording. So thank you very much. Very Frank. good. I hope you said uh, stop and not start. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> very good.